yes, you have these patients. You have nobody has done anything with your stroke patients. They basically have a stroke, they go to some kind of step down care, and they go home. And then you see a rapid decline usually of those patients for the for the vast majority. I'm more interested where they're like, let's no, let's see if we can change that because they, why have 10 years of them declining? Why not try to optimize that time so they can be present for their families? And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. The road to recovery doesn't always end in the hospital for patients with neurological diseases. In fact, their time in rehab centers and at home are critical for long-term improvement. At MindMaze, Patricia Bradley brings her leadership and marketing expertise to the health tech arena. With a diverse background in pharma and digital health, Patricia is scaling a comprehensive solution for brain health and recovery. MindMaze uses digital therapeutics and technologies to optimize motor and cognitive recovery in patients across the continuum of care. In this episode, Patricia discusses her ascent into healthcare and her work at MindMaze. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Patricia. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I I enjoy being here. Yeah, I'm so uh, excited to hear your story about the companies that you're at now. But I think before we start, it would be fun to hear about your journey. Um, You have quite a bit of experience uh, in the pharma world and now uh, not so much in the pharma, but, you know, still in the healthcare Tell us your journey a little bit. What takes you to where you are today and what drove you to get into the healthcare space? You know, it's I didn't start in healthcare. I actually started on Wall Street. Um, and it goes back so many years. I don't I don't necessarily post every job. As they say, it would go beyond two pages and you don't want to go beyond two pages on your resume. So I keep I keep it streamlined a little bit. But I started on Wall Street, um, realized pretty quickly I didn't have enough family connections. I did not have you know, my, my parents did not go to college. They were not financial people. And I just, at the time, did not have the right connections to succeed there. I wound up getting into UPS's management training program, uh, United Parcel Service, and uh, which was a crazy, eclectic start. You have to drive the truck. You have to sell their services. You then get promoted and into one of their departments. I wound up as an industrial engineering supervisor at UPS. So got really into efficiencies. I was part of the the team that initiated the Dyad, which is the computer system that UPS uses for tracking uh, packages. But I also redesigned warehouses, workflow. So I got crazy into efficiency. But really then what happened is it was by chance. I really decided I could not work in warehouses at two o'clock in the morning anymore. That at some point that really wasn't safest thing to do all the time for the long haul. And I had worked as a pharmacy tech throughout college. Um, so I decided that I was going to give a shot at healthcare, went into pharma. Um, so I started in pharmaceuticals, but then I wound up getting, my company got bought. I was in graduate school when it got bought. 
So then I had to take a leap into startups because they were the only companies that would give me flexibility to work and go to school at the same time with a lot of flexibility in the nine to five. So um, I was determined I was going to finish grad school. I thought it was really important for my career. I figured education is the one thing nobody can take away from you no matter what happens. So if a company gets bought, your education is there provided you finish it. And I was not going to going to give that up. So I wound up going into startups then. I actually did uh, AI for cancer detection using neural nets and other things for cancer detection. This goes this goes back well over 20 years ago before it was as sexy as it is now. And um, did two startups, which was really fun. And then I did a long stint. I went back into pharma uh, and did a long stint at Nova Nordisk for many years, which was just starting up their US enterprise. And they had only about 100 people. And I was part of that real large expansion into the U.S. market. The company grew into the thousands. My career grew with it, um, you know, because I'd always kind of been a, an innovative person. I even started up new businesses and had a startup within the company itself because I wasn't afraid to take risks. So I started doing things like quality measures, looking at different ways to use patient-level data and to then show and improve sustained outcomes for patients, because I've always been about trying to make sure that you, I mean, I think it's always goes back to trying to take care of yourself and your family, like figuring out ways to help people in, in a way that you believe is sustainable and impacts yourself, your community. And I had come from a family with a high incidence of diabetes, so it was quite personal um, to me. And then when that company changed CEOs, I got what happens to many high-level executives. You get pushed out when the CEO changes. That happened to me, which was very, you know, I was sad at the time, but you realize sometimes it could be the best thing that happens to you. You know, you wouldn't have made the change otherwise. And I went back into startups uh, doing a healthcare, a digital healthcare company in the UK as the US chief commercial officer before this position. And MindMaze reached out to me at a time when my dad was in rehab and um, not doing so well. And it became very personal because I could see all the issues around healthcare. And unfortunately, he, um, he, he passed away in rehab uh, because it is a very difficult, broken system in many cases that could really use technology. And so here I am, and I'm, I'm kind of leading the charge to improve care as best I can. And you know, it's, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about some of my events over the last year or so. And uh, I think that's why a lot of people get into healthcare, right? Because it is, healthcare is very personal. Right, right. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, you mentioned, uh, uh, I thought it was really interesting about your position, your job that you you start with UPS, they make you start a touch on every position. And mm-hmm. now looking back, what are the the connecting line from your first job to where you are today? Is there something that you can see that through and through that help you to become successful? I think I think there's a couple of things. One, when you when you look at um, starting on Wall Street, it's finance and numbers and understanding data and the value of data is very important. So evidence, data, um, looking at things like probability, things don't just happen by chance. How can you kind of get into predictions of, of success? I think at UPS, 
efficiencies. I definitely have an efficiency issue trying to find the quickest way to be efficient and effective. Um, and then looking to, to put a process in place to make that consistent for others to follow. Uh, but never being too married to it that I wasn't willing to change. You know, I think that came into it, a curiosity for learning and never wanting to just sit back and wait on anything. I've never sat around and just said, oh, I'm just going to do this for a few years and I'm not going to take any chances or not trying to improve. I think I've always been an optimizer, you know, and wanted to make things better. And that I've seen throughout. So there's a, a data and efficiency issue and a, and a pure learning curiosity that, that has driven me and, pers- and making it personal. That, that really feeds the curiosity because you're often looking around at your own family and surroundings and trying to see what you can improve around you. So it kind of all blends in together. So you think it's nurture or is that a personality? Definitely think, no, it's a personality trait. I'm very different than my siblings. Uh, my parents did not go to college and I was bound and determined to go to college. I have never stopped learning. Um, and I've always been a bit of a risk taker. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't afraid of change. I kind of enjoy it a little bit. So I think there's some inherited personality traits from somebody um, <laughs> that, that come through. But um, so, you know, I think you come pre-programmed with a little bit of it. And then if you're in a little bit is your environment. What you're surrounded by, New York City was right here. Um, opportunities presented themselves in different ways. So you take advantage of all of that around you. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about MindBase, where they are now, and maybe start with what the technology, what it's trying to solve, all the good things that we need to know before I ask you a further question. <laughs> it's actually complicated a little bit because neurology is complicated. So we are the full continuum of care. If you think about it, neuro issues like stroke um, or other things, there's really no medication for stroke. TPA came out in the 90s. That was a clot buster to help break down clots from that type of stroke. But outside of that, there's nothing. There's no drug to treat somebody post-stroke, right? You wind up, you're, you're perfectly fine one moment, and then all of a sudden an event happens, and then you lose function, and it's dramatic. and then the body does respond, but you you often never get back to where you were. And so it is one of those areas where technology can really come in because behavioral interventions have always been known in animal studies to work, meaning activity, things um, tapping into that hyperplastic window post-event where your brain, your body's just looking for a way to rewire itself and get moving. And if you can put somebody in a a high-dose intensive environment, it can help people respond better. It can bring you back to your full potential. It may never get you back to where you were, but it will get you further along. And this system is is very broken. I mean, you think about it, there's no connectivity between what happens in the hospital to the neurologist, to the physical therapist, to when you go home. It's a, it's a very broken system. So technology can come in and so really for MindMaze, we start in hospital right after an issue, tapping into that, believing that you can take technology, submerse, you know, put a patient in a submersive environment that hits all your senses, you know, visual, audio, physical, and that if you do that right away, you're giving the body the best chance to respond. 
But then you have to think about the care continuum and all the transitions of care and can you follow them through? And then that's what we do. We go from that acute care setting to step-down care in, say, like a rehab hospital, um, taking that technology, which is gamifying either, either a digital medicine or digital therapy, and then it can actually go home with them. And you do this at home, and all that information is feeding back to your clinicians who then can prescribe care based upon what your issues are. And computers don't lie. I mean, computers tell you when you're, when you're compensating, when you're faking it, they do a full assessment. There's no rater bias. So it takes out a lot of the, the pain points along the way. And as I said, for myself, my dad was in rehab and I was watching the failure of what was going on there. Like when you're in a rehab hospital, you sit there for hours upon hours doing nothing in your bed. Mm-hmm. And they don't want you to move because you're a fall risk to them. You know, you maybe get up twice a day for physical therapy, but your actual time on task is very limited. I mean, I knew that. I was trying to get extra physical therapy for my dad and more sessions. But that's where, you know, there's a shortage of healthcare providers to do this. There's a shortage of time and space. And technology can fit the bill in that mm-hmm. very easily by gamifying therapy. And that's where I think, you know, MindMace has a very unique offering. We're, we're not the goggles. Although we do have goggles for sports performance. I mean, our whole thing is to map out using trackerless cameras and mapping out the body, knowing what it's doing, and then prescribing things accordingly to optimize that physical, you know, mm-hmm. the, the physical rehab. You briefly touched upon like how it works. So can you share with us like how it really works? Well, so there, there's a couple of different things. We're a portfolio of technology. So we're not just one technology. We have MindPod, which is the digital medicine component of it. And that is really like a very open, free play, fully submersive situation, you know, with visuals and noise and and an environment. So it's doing a lot of cognitive load. It's helping you multitask. Um, It's very creative, which is helping your, your brain really try to remap itself. So it is restorative, right? That, that MindPod is a restorative medicine. And then we get into what we call more the exercise of it, which is the physical therapy, and that is Mind Motion Go, and there are different games. So if you think about it, one is very open-ended, where you, you're not on a track, you don't see what's going on. Um, so it's, it, it's really helping you, you know, it's, it's helping your brain look at things very differently, right? It's very creative, it's very playful. And I think, you know, it's, it's a different type of medicine and that's that behavioral therapy. But then when you look at my motion go, it's a little bit more of a track. You can see what's coming. You're flying a plane, you're doing a flying carpet. You may be crossing a road, you're doing something, but you can see what's coming and there are little prizes and things along the way. So it's gamifying physical therapy, um, but it makes it fun and engaging. And what we do know from using it through the assessments is that the number of movements in some cases, it's a tenfold increase. And that by doing more physical movements, you should be, in theory, doing better, you know, and gamifying the whole process. And then we get into making peripherals or hardware that's in service to the software. So we make a, an item called an IZAR, which is like an egg-shaped entity that can measure the smallest hand movement for somebody who may have difficulty with hand function, which is very common mm-hmm. for stroke patients. We make sensors that detect movement. 
We even make electrical stimulation devices to help open the hand because often the hand can be very tight and clenched in. So we do make hardware in the service to the software. Um, but at the same time, we're thinking about the patient in every level of their journey from the initial, you know, when they're admitted to the hospital for the event, trying to treat them there, and then getting involved in step-down care, and then watching that and, and looking at it almost like a cycle because they can go back through things throughout their journey of their life. They may, may need to go back in for digital medicine, then they'll go out to physical therapy and so on and so on. So as needed, that you're going to really optimize their, mm-hmm. their performance and their outcomes for mm-hmm. themselves. So it is the full continuum of care for patients with movement disorders. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So I think um, your role as the chief commercial officer, which, you know, which com- you know, every company when they develop product, they want their product to be deployed to uh, help patients or consumer. What you you have a lot of experience in this space. And is there like a framework that you can share for others? Like you see companies who are thinking about you know, who have who develop product, but they have not figured out how to get bring somebody like your expertise that you can share your insight. So I'm a you know I'm I'm probably one of the few people with this diverse background with pharma and um, also digital health experience. I had played in it in graduate school. You know I did it for a few years in graduate school uh, of digital health using neural nets for cancer detection, and they're great for finding abnormal things, right? I mean that's what they're good at that. So I I got I just had the luck of the draw, right? Um, that it was a job that wanted me and gave me flexibility when I was in college, and I needed that flexibility. Um, but then learning the discipline of drug development and launching drugs and the process for approval and the regulatory component of it, it's a highly regulated industry, comes out of pharma. Um, market access, payer access, that all comes out of pharma. Uh, but then, you know, I did a such, such a long period, I wanted to go back into that more learning environment for myself and they needed somebody like me. Um, who had the background of taking drugs to market and had that discipline and also understands the regulatory environment. So it, it was, I got brought back into digital health probably because of my pharma knowledge. And now I've been in it a while, so I have both. I would say for anybody, young or old, you you need to constantly be thinking of how not to have grass grow under your feet. You've got to keep staying current, whether that is through school, like I've gone back to Wharton for years, in postgraduate studies um, and others, I think you just have to keep on learning and and not sit on your laurels and just get bored. And for young people, don't be afraid to step into something new. I mean, often startup companies will give you the flexibility you need for other things that you do. Like you, you want to do podcasts, you want to do something else on the side, you want to side hustle. Um, young companies are usually more flexible 
in that than others. And I just think you have to have this passion for learning. And that creates job security. It makes you interesting. It, it provides a lot of different experiences. Startups are amazing for, they don't have anybody to do things. So you can do lots of things you never did before, even if it's your first time. And the truth is, is you really can't screw it up because nobody was doing it. So what are you afraid of? <laughs> You're going to learn. You're going to find a lot of people who can help you. If you ask for help all the time, you will find people who will help you. People like me, we're just, we're willing to give advice all the time, Mm -hmm. especially if you're in something related that we're interested in. We like to constantly be learning, but it is a two-way street. I want to learn from you. You want to learn from me. It's never just one way. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot I can learn. I mean, just because somebody doesn't have 20 years of pharma experience doesn't mean that they're not much better at social media than I am. Mm-hmm. Right. And and there are other ways that I can I can learn from people along the way. Um, so tapping into those experiences, you know, we have this whole like super connector influencer thing going on. Well, maybe that's their area of expertise, figuring out how to get into alternate channels to be an influencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the way you market shape now, really, within healthcare. Figuring out how to connect and be a super connector. It's not advertising in some medical magazine. It's other other things, WebMD and whether that be Instagram or whether that be Twitter or LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, people can bring a lot to the table. And as long as they're curious, it's fun. I think you just need to stay curious. And I recommend everybody stay curious. Mm-hmm. So what does a commercial officer do in MindMaze? What do I do? I do just about everything. Um, and and that's startups are just about everything. So for me, I'm in charge of sales, marketing, market access, um, partnerships, collaborations. I also get involved in clinical trials and making sure they're designed with endpoints that are commercially viable. Um, you, you do a lot because at a startup company, there's just not enough people. So nobody's in their one channel. But I would say the first thing is understanding sales, you know, really just looking, that's targeting, segmentation, your go-to-market messages, your your value story, right? Your value proposition. And then it's also forecasting. What's the market size? What's the potential? What are you going to tap into? It's creating all of the sales stories and messaging that's going to be used. It's all the marketing content. And then it's all the contract negotiations for market access, payer contracts, value-based contracts, um, potentially research agreements, partnerships. Like, do you buy it? Do you build it? Uh, Estimating how many people you need for everything. Being a spokesperson for the company on a regular basis. Um, Getting up and speaking at public forums. Recruiting. Setting up policies. Doing culture you know, um, diversity and inclusion. It's all in there. Everything is in there. And the kitchen sink. And so you touch about like uh, under, uh, doing a contract. Uh, when people think about sales, sure, you have to do a contract. But how about the market access? Like what role do you play? Because in order to increase your sale, having that mm-hmm. market access understood and have uh, 
the right people pay for the service? And how do you navigate that? And how does it work with MindMaze? So for us right now, we are doing outreach to payers um, on a regular basis. And and through that, you have to do a lot of modeling. Like I said, I like data. You know, you do a lot of modeling. Like, what does it cost for this care? Like, so you do, you're pricing it. We have pricing committee. I set up a pricing committee where we evaluate what our prices need to be. Do we discount it? Um, how do we preserve our best price out there? Because every time you discount it, you know, that's it. Now you've set a bar for your prices too. So you have to make sure what are the cost of goods? What are they now? What will they be in the future? And, and it used to be you always thought they went down, but right now they keep going up because getting goods is not so simple. So you have to create some cushions in there too. But we do, I, you know, I'm doing outreach to payers. Um, we are doing modeling with them. Uh, we're looking, you know, we're setting up pilots with them in different locations and I'm doing it globally. So I'm not just dealing with the U.S. market. I'm dealing with Germany. I'm dealing with France, UK, um, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and all those locations. And they're all different. And the U.S. is very complicated. But you're, you're basically, you know, you, you try to figure out your sweet spot to start. So I call it land and expand. Um, often for us, we will look at like a good place for us to start is integrated delivery networks where they're everything, right? And so they are the care providers. They're the hospitals. They own the provider networks. They're also the payer. So they're all in. So they really do care about trying to get good outcomes and optimizing care and not having patients be readmitted into the hospital, but have a true physical improvement in that person. And that's, that's where we're starting right now is in those IDNs and, and others because they, they're, they're all in on those mm -hmm. patients. Um, and they look at it a little bit differently. It's not a transactional process for them. They stay in the communities. Um, they're not going anywhere. Their patients are not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you, you see that a lot in the Midwest um, and other places, but they do, they, they're in it for the long haul with the patient. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of where you start. But to do that, you also have to have usage. Um, and then you have to apply for codes to get approval for it. So you're setting up all those scenarios that are giving you that information. And so we were saying that you're in the integrated delivery care now uh, with the hope to expand to more understanding, say, for like, you know, for stroke patient, when before the stroke, they have a job, they have certain health care. And then when they get into stroke, then probably their health plan change because if they're disabled, is that part of the reason that make it uh, complicated? It can be, but that's long-term disability. That usually takes almost a year to get into a long-term dis disability situation. You'll still usually be under your employer's healthcare for a period of time, which is the commercial part of it. Um, it could be what they call Medicare Part D, too, or you know Medicare coverage if if you're a senior citizen and you're retired, um, which might not change from your employer depending upon the age. Although we're seeing stroke in much younger patients these days. Um, overall, but in, in general, you know, it's, there's, there's a big bill, right? You're admitted to the hospital. There's a big bill associated with that. So you are looking to get them out of the hospital as fast as possible, but with good care 
And that's where technology can come in too to help support that patient. And do they have to go to a rehab center or can they do rehab at home with some kind of computer assisted process? And I think most people would, you know, I mean, I know I prefer to get my parents home as much as possible. You know, it's a better setting. They're often encouraged to move more. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't restricting my dad not to move. I'm like, you know, you got to move. <laughs> you got to, you got to get going. Um, you know, my mom can't handle all this. She can't pick you up. So you better get moving. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think home is where everybody wants to be. You're seeing more and more things move into the home and trying to bring care to the home. It is, I think, financially um, less costly on the healthcare mm-hmm. system. Uh, so, so all of that plays into this, you know, and what, and what we're doing and what, what families want. Mm-hmm. So what challenges that you face as you're trying to bring your product to the integrated delivery care system? For us, it's the, it's the ecosystem of healthcare in that it's not, you have a digital drug, but we're not an app on a phone. Right. We are actually computers and trackerless cameras that go home with people. So it's not like you take a prescription and you can go down the street to the pharmacy, give them the piece of paper, and they're going to give you the, com- the computer. There is the process of that adjudication of the claim and how do you do it. So you are starting to see um, digital formularies come out. There's companies that are doing digital formularies, and then a prescription could be submitted by their EHR system into a digital formulary, and that would trigger something to be shipped to their house. And we know we can get stuff there overnight. I mean, overnight shipping has not is not new. Mm-hmm. I was at UPS; they do overnight <laughs> shipping. Um, you can get anything anywhere across the U.S. overnight if you you know if you mm-hmm. want to. Um, so we can do that. And and we're not just in stroke; like we're in all movement disorders, all neurological conditions. So that includes MS and Parkinson's disease and traumatic brain injury, um, and other things where there would be a need for a behavioral therapy intervention that focuses on movement. Um, so this can be done, but there is that process of how does it work? How does it get reimbursed? Um, and you just need usage really, you know, to start working through those kinks. There's, you're seeing a lot of little tech companies pop up with digital formularies like Zelf popped up and some others. Um, so you have to be really what I call a kissing cousin in digital health. You have lots of friends. Nobody is your enemy. You collaborate together. I'm actually part of a collaborative effort by many digital therapeutic companies where we're trying to figure out the ecosystem and what's, how are these things going to be reimbursed? Um, what does the body of evidence have to look like for, for reimbursement by payers? And, and it's pretty vigorous. It's similar to drugs, right? They want the same <laughs> efficacy type of trials. Um, but in some cases, we don't have the same pocketbooks that uh, a pharma company does. Mm-hmm. So does that mean like with the, the digital formulary, does it work with the PBM? It could work with a PBM. It could work with a distributor. It depends on how the claim is going to get adjudicated. Mm-hmm. Um, it could go direct. So we could be part of the DRG when you're in the hospital, just getting a little additional money in the DRG for digital therapeutics. We could be part of a pharmacy benefit where it's prescribed You know, when you go home. In the hospital, is probably going to be part of the DRG where there's a component for digital therapeutics in the hospital. And, and it just is... Uh, is an add-on 
you know, or an additional maybe reimbursement amount, additional dollar allocated for digital therapeutics. Uh, and then we could be something that basically, you know, a f- prescription is done right by the doctor into the EHR and it hits the digital formulary and then it's going to show up at your house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody's going to have to help you set it up probably. Yeah. So then you get other things like you, you see now even uh, Best Buy is getting into healthcare with the Geek Squad and others. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon is getting into healthcare and they do deliveries. So there's, there's different partners that you can, that can come into play that may have not been your traditional partners. Even, even Mark Cuban is doing drug delivery now. So mm-hmm. who knows who will, who will wind up helping us get these systems home, but they are setting up logistic com- mm-hmm. logistics companies that ship things to people and mm-hmm. all, you just need that shipment of something to somebody's house and then somebody helping them set it up. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that not complicated. It's like setting up an Xbox. Yeah. And so, um, so right now, MindMaze is—is is it currently reimbursed? I mean, if you're a patient. How does it work for a patient in order to get a MindMaze product? That we are right at the cusp of learning that we do have a CPT code, a Category Three CPT code that went live at the beginning of this year. Um, we don't know what that reimbursement is going to be. Um, that's part of the ongoing trials in these real-world situations that we're doing um, so that we can look at the cost and the benefit of care in the process and then look at the economic value of that and get reimbursement based off of that. So we're doing these larger, more pivotal trials on that. We've seen efficacy. We have efficacy trials already, but um, we're doing more and more that brings in health economic outcomes research so that we can get into the price setting. But we do have a CPT code. We will be over the next six to eight months learning very quickly what our reimbursement is going to be. And then there may be a little give and take with us having to show additional outcomes to support, um, you know, the dollars associated with this. And, and we're going to continue to do that evidence generation to support, um, to support that. People can pay out of pocket for it if they, you know, if they wanted to. There are centers that do provide this. Uh, for patients, and they can use things like their flexible spending accounts and other things to do it. And and if you know anything about people in rehab, um, like my dad, you get you start getting billed very quickly by everybody. At uh, you know in this process, it's there's there's deductibles. It can be used in their deductibles and things mm-hmm. like that too. So um, our goal is to get is to get reimbursement for patients so they can have easily have access to this. And home. right now, it's, it's not currently reimbursed. How much will that cost a patient? Well, there's a code, the but we have, we're, we're only at January and it just went live in January. So I don't know yet what the reimbursement is going to be for that code. There are other codes that do support the technology around remote therapy monitoring, remote patient monitoring that facilities can, can tap into to get some supplemental uh, parts of it covered or chronic mm-hmm. care management where they can get dollars associated, uh, you know, for that care level and bring that in. But I don't really know what the reimbursement is going to be actually for the MindMaze system yet. We have our mm-hmm. own unique code and we'll find out over the next couple of months quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But it only, it's like a backward system. You don't find out what you're going to get reimbursed till you actually try to get reimbursed. And that's what we're doing right now, trying to get reimbursed. And I'll know more in, a, in probably the next five to six weeks what's mm-hmm. going to happen as those claims go through 
the process. Yeah. I'll find out what the first dollars are going to be towards this. So you're right at the beginning, the beginning of it now. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll check back with you in a few months, see where you are. But, but even then, like if somebody had to pay out of pocket, you're only talking, you're, you're, you're we're not talking thousands of dollars. We're talking only hundreds of dollars. So it's mm-hmm. not, gonna, it's not a crazy, crazy amount of money. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know we are short on time. Um, it's one uh, last question. Uh, uh, when you do a lot of uh, sales, selling to getting, trying to get account, obviously that you have to build that relationship in, in order to build that trust. And then that's when things, the, the organization would say like, okay, you know, we trust your system. We want some of our patients to use your product. Do, do you have like a framework? Is like, do you have any advice for people who are interested in in this field of work? Yeah, I think in sales and anything else, you you need to be authentic. Nobody wants to buy a car from a used car salesman. So I I tell people, look, I'm not trying to sell hundreds of systems. I am looking for people who believe that there is a better way to take care of patients, that we can improve outcomes and that we can work collaboratively to to show that this can really happen. And that has to be a partnership with anybody, whether it's an academic institution, a, you know, a healthcare system. I'm not here to just sell you hundreds of systems, right? Because I can sell you things, but if they collect dust, they do no good for me or for you. I'm really about kind of co-creation and saying, okay, what's your problems? Yes, you have these patients. You have Nobody has done anything with your stroke patients. They basically have a stroke, they go to some kind of step-down care, and they go home, and then you see a rapid decline usually of those patients for the, for the vast majority. I'm more interested where they're like, let's, no, let's see if we can change that, because they, why have 10 years of them declining? Why not try to optimize that time so they can be present for their families? Um, so that's that's what I look for. And I am a little bit selective on who we sell products to. We're just not looking to pump them out. And I think with anything, you just be authentic and um, you need to find like-mindedness. Nobody, nobody wants a hard sell. It has to be really about finding a problem and where do you fit into that problem? And does it fit for them? You know, does it fit? Does it provide a solution that is something that they need to fix? Um, and do they care about it enough? Because even if they're not ready for me now, they might be ready for me in a year. So sometimes you have to not think about an instant sale either. Sometimes it's just about an introduction and some things will lead to something right away and some things will be, we'll revisit or we'll just stay connected for a period of time and maybe we'll do something down the road a little bit or see if there's some other um, opportunity. Sometimes it becomes an introduction to somebody else too because they they're not ready for you. So I think... You just have to be open. And I look at it like you're making friends and you're just expanding your professional network and connect and find out where you have synergies. Half the time you realize you're connected to somebody in some way, shape or form. And it's always surprising when you find that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your insight. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.